Today, the task is to talk about book one of Aristotle's Politics. Not going to talk about everything in book one. Uh, we have two days devoted to book one. Um, on Thursday, I will be talking about Aristotle's discussion of slavery um, um, because that's a, that's worth, I mean, I could spend, we could spend a couple of weeks on just those chapters, um, but I, I'm going to restrict myself to spending one day on them. What we're going to do today instead, uh, we're going to sort of skip over uh, chapters four through seven. Um, and what I want to do is first, I want to, I want to just talk to you a little bit about Aristotle's text, because <clears throat> I promised that I would do this. Um, this will just be some historical background where Aristotle's books sort of come from, what sort of purpose they served, um, and the, especially the organization and the, the structure um, and the condition of the text of the politics. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be dealing with that. Then I'm going to turn to book one itself, and I'm going to talk about the, the sort of opening of book one, the problem that Aristotle sets for himself in book one, and then I'm going to talk about the structure of book one, the structure of the argument. One of the things that you'll have to get used to reading Aristotle is Aristotle actually tells you everything he's going to do before he does it, but he doesn't tell you that he's telling you that. So he gives you clues about what's going to be happening, um, and you can discern the structure. Uh, but oftentimes when you're encountering the book for the first time, you don't, you can't, you don't discern the structure because he doesn't tell you that that's what he's telling you. Um, the information he gives you, he doesn't, he doesn't signpost it as, oh, this is what I'm going to be doing in this book uh, and in the next book and so forth. So I'm going to try to lead you through some of that and, and put you on to some of the clues about the structure. And then we'll be able to talk uh, more substantively about what the argument, I think, in book one um, amounts to. So first, let's talk about his texts. I'm going to talk about four things. First, their origin and the role that they played in Aristotle's school, the Lyceum. I'm going to talk about the textual history. They were, as I mentioned last time, they were lost for a time um, and then recovered. Um, and so it's important to talk about that. I'm going to talk about the sort of organization of his whole corpus very briefly and where the politics fits into that. Um, and then I'm going to talk about the politics in particular. So the Lyceum is the name that has come down to us for Aristotle's school. Uh, Aristotle's school was called the Lyceum because there was already a place called the Lyceum, and that's where Aristotle taught. Um, the Lyceum was a sanctuary um, to Apollo Lucius, um, Apollo the Wolf, um, which was a particular form of Apollo. Uh, like, you know, it came from a certain set of stories about Apollo. So there was a, 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 a grove, a, an open area that was... Um, sanctified. It was uh, a sanctuary to Apollo, um, and it was referred to as the Lyceum. And over time, some temples to Apollo were built, um, and some other buildings were built in, the, in this sanctuary area that was just outside the walls of Athens. And long before Aristotle, sophists and philosophers had used the Lyceum as a space for uh, discussion, um, debate, um, demonstration, etc. When Macedonia conquered Athens in 335 BCE, um, and that 
I mentioned this last time, Aristotle was out of the city. He had been gone uh, from the city for, for 12 years or so. Uh, when they conquered Athens, Aristotle moved back to Athens. Um, and when he moved back to Athens, he brought with him a sizable library that he had established um, in Macedon. Um, and he brought it and he put the, the, the library in a building in the Lyceum and started using that building as the center of a school, um, a, a teaching and research space. And the reputedly, and he stayed there, he stayed in the Lyceum, he continued to teach in the Lyceum and, and carry on research activities in the Lyceum for um, the next 12 years. Um, reputedly, he gave lectures uh, or taught students uh, who were like pay-in um, enrolled students in his school. He, he taught them in the morning, and then he gave public lectures outdoors um, in the afternoon. Uh, the, his school was also called the, the peripatetic school because reputedly Aristotle, when he was teaching his students, would walk around. He would walk around the Lyceum um, and his students would follow after him listening to his lessons. The library that he established at the Lyceum consisted of a large number of texts. And the big division in the texts was between the texts that were used only within the school that is, they were esoteric, and the books or, or the, the papyri, uh, the, the scrolls, uh, that contained texts that were used for public lectures. So those are the exoteric texts. And so a division has come down to us between Aristotle's esoteric um, teachings and his exoteric teachings. That is basically uh, between the sort of um, technical and research-oriented um, texts that he used within the school. Um, and these might have, these included everything from things like reports on the, the constitutions of Greek cities to reports of, uh, you know, strange animal species and classifications of animals uh, based on travel logs and stuff like that. Everything from those sorts of research report type things to um, sets of lessons and questions that were meant to guide students through their research um, into uh, physical and philosophical um, questions. So that was the esoteric side. That was the stuff for, for students. It was meant for students. On the other hand, there were these public texts, these things that Aristotle published and um, read aloud um, to uh, an, an audience of whomever. And often these were of the sort that was supposed to attract people to the school or provide some sort of general uh, public introduction to a particular field of study. Um, the politics uh, it's not, I mean, the, these, these things are all in, uh, you know, various reports of Aristotle. Um, most of these reports were written, or at least the, the earliest manuscripts that we have of them were written long, 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 long after Aristotle's time, um, often not until the 9th, 10th, 11th century of um, our era. So therefore, there's a lot of doubt about how much veracity these various reports have. And there's no way of you know, with great certainty, classifying the politics. 
whether we don't know whether the politics was a text, uh, an esoteric text, a text for use within the school, or whether it was a public uh, course of lectures. Um, it's very hard to say. So after Aristotle left Athens, um, he went in um, in 323, he bequeathed his school um, and his library to his student Theophrastus, who was Athenian and therefore not Macedonian and therefore not susceptible to the sort of anti-Macedon backlash that was going on in Athens at the time. So he bequeathed his school, left it all to Theophrastus um, and went off to Euboea. So Theophrastus uh, ran uh, Aristotle's school for a while and then he, um, when he died, he gave it to this, a student, Nellius. But Nellius and uh, other students of Theophrastus, uh, there was conflict about the direction of the school and what was going on. And some sort of fight led to Nellius um, getting up and leaving Athens. But when he left, he took the library with him. Um, and so he carried away Aristotle's library um, to Skepsis. Um, and... Then he, when he died, uh, it fell to his heirs, his descendants, his children and family. They didn't know what to do with this giant library. It was the largest library in the ancient world. Um, they had no idea what to do with it. So what they did was they uh, basically locked it up in an attic. Uh, in fact, uh, on the slide right now, this is a, this is a little selection from Strabo's uh, Geographica, um, which was written in, I believe, the third century um, CE, um, and it's the most detailed account of what happened. Um, and there's, according to Strabo, they actually um, put, uh, hid them in the ground in a trench. Um, in order to in order to keep them from being uh, taken by um, by um, those who wanted them, eventually they um, sold them to a sort of book collector named Apelicon, and Apelicon um, took all of the manuscripts, all of the books, um, took them back to Athens. And he wanted to restart Aristotle's school and thought this was really cool stuff. Um, but he was not a great philosopher. Um, and according to Strabo, he had the books recopied in various ways. And in this way, lots of errors were introduced into the uh, uh, Aristotelian corpus. The books stayed in Athens in whatever degraded form um, until... Um, um, after the death of Apelicon, um, the Roman general Sulla had captured Athens and, um, I mean, he ended up dis largely destroying Athens um, and um, subjugating it to Rome. And when he took Athens, he discovered this, he found this library and he took it off, took it, he um, carted it back to Rome. And once it was back in Rome, then um, a number of learned Romans um, started to 
go through it and try to systematize, catalog, um, and straighten out um, this library um, and to, to get it into uh, the shape where it could be the basis of education again. So in all of that process, in other words, we lost a lot of Aristotle's works. Um, and, uh, you know, some be to rot um, and rats, um, some to in transfers, right? Uh, things may have been lost when they were transferred from one owner to another. So the corpus Aristoc uh, Aristotelicum, which has come down to us, is, uh, is a small fragment of what there once was. Um, even after it came to Rome, um, so the, the, the lar one of the earliest catalogs of the corpus Aristotelicum is one recorded by Diogenes Laertius, who was a third century biographer of the Greek philosophers. And um, Diogenes catalog lists 156 titles. Um, any modern complete uh, edition of Aristotle's works is going to contain at most um, in somewhere in the 40s, a number of four, you know, 40 titles, something like that. Um, the edition that was compiled by, um, by um, uh, August uh, Becker between 1831 and 1870 had 45 titles. Um, since then, since Becker's time, um, the Constitution of the Athenians has been discovered um, and the Protrepticus, one of Aristotle's dialogues, has been reconstructed from fragments. Um, those have been the only texts that have been mod added to the Corpus Aristotelicum in modern times. Um, but lots of ones that were even in Becker's list have been um, subjected to greater scrutiny and have been thought to be spurious um, and have been excluded. Um, so probably about a third of the titles in Becker's uh, edition are now thought to be uh, definitely not uh, Aristotle. Aristotle's um, corpus is then it's divided into parts, um, and this this is devote this is, uh, I mean it has been divided into parts many times over the years. Uh, the current division is one that we owe to Becker. Um, we also owe to Becker all of the margin numbers, uh, the like twelve eighty five a twenty. Um, that all comes from Becker's edition, which has become sort of the standard roadmap to Aristotle's text. Becker divided the texts into five parts. Um, the first part is uh, the texts concerned with logic, which are also called the organon. Organon means tool. So logic is the, the, the general tool of thought. Um, the second and the largest division are, are texts devoted to physics or to natural philosophy, that is to the study of nature to natural of, and of natural phenomena. Third, there is the division devoted to metaphysics, which contains exactly one text, the metaphysics. Um, then there are texts devoted to ethics and politics, and everything that we're reading comes from there. And then finally, there are texts devoted to rhetoric uh, and poetics, which really amounts to two texts, the rhetoric and uh, the poetics. So let's talk about the politics in particular as a text. Um, the politics as we have it is very clearly a damaged um, book and an incomplete book. 
Um, books one through three are in good condition, but book three seems to end in the middle of a sentence. Um, and what it ends with um, is a promise to talk about the best regime. But the best regime is not then what is talked about in books four, five, or six. Instead, book seven seems to pick up exactly where book three left off. Moreover, book eight and book six are incomplete. They're clear, we only have, uh, book six is, there's probably only a third of that book extant. Uh, book eight um, is probably about half complete or something like that. Um, they clearly break off in the middle of their proposed um, subject matter, um, just end. So what that means is that we really have three chunks. We have books one through three, we have books four through six, and we have books seven and eight, which, and those three chunks, like they're, they're cohesive with one, with each, you know, amongst themselves, but not with one another, or it's not clear how they, the three chunks go together. Um, obviously, modern editions, it's one through eight, that obviously imposes an order on them. Um, but I think probably it makes more sense, um, and this is the way that we're going to encounter them in this class, is we're going to read one through three, then we're going to read seven and eight, because it seems as if they actually go next to three. Um, and then we're going to do uh, four, five, and six um, as the, the conclusion of the book. So let's uh, talk briefly about book one. Um, what I want to do is I want to talk about the, the sort of object of the book. What's the, what is it that Aristotle is setting out to do uh, in this book? This is the introduction to the politics in general. And so what he sets out to do here is also indicative of what he's going to be doing in the politics as a whole, um, but um, not perfectly indicative, and we'll get to that. Um, second, I wanna talk about the disagreement with Plato that sort of serves as the jumping off point for book one. And then that'll lead to a discussion of the structure of book one as a whole. So the object of Aristotle's inquiry uh, is what he says in the very first chapter of book one. So I've got that on the slide and I'll just read it. Since we see that every city, uh, and I'm going to be using the, um, the texts and the slides come from the Lord translation, which is the one that I put up on Slack in my courses. Um, if you have the Joe Sachs translation, which is also what I actually have in front of me, uh, the translation is going to differ a little bit, and I will talk about uh, some of those differences, but um, the differences are not the differences are tend to be in how individual words are translated, not in the overall sense of a sentence. And the the choices that Lord makes and that Sachs makes are defense are both defensible and and sometimes it's interesting to have both of their choices in front of us. So I'll call attention to it whenever they have different have made different choices. Okay, so sorry. Um, since we see that every city is some sort of community or association as Sachs has it, and that every community is constituted for the sake of some good, since everyone does everything for the sake of what is held to be good. It is clear that all communities aim at some good, 
and that the community that is most authoritative of all and embraces all the others does so particularly and aims at the most authoritative good of all. This is what is called the city or the political community. So obviously this reiterates uh, the opening of the Nicomachean ethics in some sense, right? It says, you know, it makes the same claim that the ethics begins with, which is that um, we do everything for the sake of some good, right? Something that is held to be good or something that appears good to us, right? And that the highest human good is going to be the one that comes from, uh, that goes along with the highest human practice. And that is politics, the practice of constituting the highest human community, the city. What I want to highlight are a couple of um, sort of suppressed premises or suppressed implications of Aristotle's argument in this first paragraph. Um, first of all, so that Aristotle says explicitly that the city is the most authoritative community. Uh, so the city is a kind of community uh, that is a koinonia. Uh, it's literally like something in common, right? Something we share. Um, it's the most uh, it's a sort, it's the, the city is something we share. It's something that we make in common. But the unstated premise is precisely that the city is something that we do. So the city isn't something, isn't simply something that we share um, sort of automatically or something like that. But like within the parentheses, Aristotle says, everyone does everything for the sake of what is held to be good. And that is supposed to support this claim that every community is constituted for the sake of some good, right? So the community is something that we do. Um, and that is going to be important, um, that uh, the community of the city, the political community, is not something that we simply find ourselves in, um, but it is something that emerges from or is constituted by our practices. I think that's one of the most central things that, um, uh, I think it's one of the most central claims of Aristotle's politics, um, that is that politics is something we do. Um, and he's going to try to um, analyze and um, um, provide critical intellectual um, uh, resources for understanding politics on the basis of that premise that that the city is something we do. Second, he says outright that the city is what aims at the most authoritative good, right? Um, but there's an unstated implication here that it's the most authoritative good that can be pursued by a community, okay? Um, that is, the city is a form of cooperation. It's something that we do together, um, and, to, and we do it together in order to uh, um, pursue something that we can only do together, right? And the question is, well, what is it? What is this thing that we can only do together? Um, and in what sense, and the highest form of the thing that we can only do together is going to be the good that the city um, is most oriented towards. 
But that does not um, leave out the possibility, and this will come back when we get to book seven, this is not going to exclude the possibility that there might be activities, there might be things we do that aim at even higher goods, but that we don't do cooperatively, that we do individually. And so there might be a tension between the goods pursued by individual activity and the goods pursued by cooperative activity. The city aims at the most authoritative good at, of all that can be pursued by cooperative activity. I think that that is a, an implication that is uh, Aristotle opens the door to here, but doesn't actually um, state as such. In the next paragraph, Aristotle um, turns to um, a, an argument against Plato. Um, and it's this argument against Plato that uh, this disagreement with Plato that's going to structure um, the rest of book one. And in some sense, structures all of the politics. Aristotle doesn't name Plato here, but everybody acknowledges that Plato is who Aristotle is thinking of. Aristotle starts the next paragraph by saying, now, those who assume that the same person is skilled at political rule as at kingship, household management, and mastery of slaves do not speak beautifully. And those who suppose this are Plato, um, or at least are um, some of Plato's characters uh, in his dialogues, namely Socrates in the Republic, um, and the Iliadic stranger uh, in The Statesman. Um, and these two characters both seem to maintain, the Iliadic stranger says it argues for it explicitly, seems to maintain that there is one kind of rule. Um, ruling and being ruled are of one kind. And, in, um, and the difference between different instances of ruling and being ruled have only to do with various quantitative differences in the number of rulers and the number of ruled. Socrates in the Republic doesn't make that explicit of an argument, but you can see, I think, in book eight and nine that Socrates presupposes that ruling and being ruled are of one kind. And that's why, I mean, we discussed this um, when we were reading the Republic, that's why Aristotle, or that's why Socrates seems to exclude the possibility of uh, political freedom at all, right? He, he doesn't even consider it as a possibility because he sees that if you are, if you rule yourself, then you are also a slave to yourself. And if you are not, if you do not rule yourself, to be a slave to someone who does rule themselves. The premise of that argument is that there's no difference between um, slavery, um, political leadership, uh, or you know, there's no difference between mastery over slaves, political leadership, and, uh, and self-control. That all of those are um, the same sort of thing, right? Um, and so that is the premise that Aristotle wants to disagree with. He immediately says that 
um, and he differentiates four possibilities here. Um, that political rule or politikon, kingly rule or basilikon, uh, uh, mastery over slaves or despotikon, and household management or oikonomikon, he says these are all different, right? He says uh, these things are not, the, the things that Plato holds are not true. In other words, Aristotle is going to argue, he's telling us right here, that he's going to argue that there are qualitative differences amongst these different um, forms of ruling and being ruled. They're qualitatively different relationships, not just quantitatively different. And he says that we're going to see this, that we can see this clearly if we break down the city into its uncompounded elements, right, the smallest parts of the city, um, and look at how the city comes into being from those uncompounded elements, from those simple parts. And what's interesting here is that when Aristotle says that we're going to break down the city into its component parts, he does not mean that we're going to break down the city into individual people. And that becomes clear at the beginning of chapter two. Um, he says that the, the first thing he looks at, the simple things out of which the city grows and out of which the city is composed are the male-female relationship and the master-slave relationship, right? These are two qualitatively different relationships. They are relationships that are necessary for life. Right? The male-female relationship, he says, is necessary for uh, procreation and the continuation of life. And the master-slave relationship is um, necessary for just the persistence of life, being able to survive. And it is from the, the conjunction of those two relationships that first the household and then eventually the city um, is made up. Okay. So there are two lessons then from chapter one, I think. The first um, is that Aristotle thinks that uh, the different types of rule have to be differentiated qualitatively, right? Um, and that therefore political rule is not the same sort of thing as the rule of master over slaves or the rule of husband over wife or the rule of king over subjects, okay? That's going to be the structuring claim for the whole of the politics. We have to track down what political rule is and what kingly rule are in particular. The second big takeaway from chapter one is that the city is composed of different relationships. Um, that the city is not composed primarily of individuals, but primarily of relationships. The structure of 
Aristotle's argument over most of the rest of book one is going to look like this. Um, we can talk a little bit more about book chapter two. There's a lot that happens in chapter two, and I, it, chapter two is incredibly interesting. Um, but the real argument gets underway in chapter three. Chapter three um, focuses on oikonomike, that is household management. Um, and in chapter three, Aristotle says that oikonomike has three parts, um, despotike or skill at mastery, uh, gamike, which is skill at marriage or marital rule, and technopoietike, which is skill at child rearing or procreative rule. Notice two things. One, oikonomike is one of the three or one of the four types of rule that Aristotle mentioned right at the beginning. So he's immediately identified one of the four as that's going to be his focus at first. Second, he has subordinated one of the other four, despotike, underneath oikonomike, right? He has said that despotike is part of household management, right? Um, and so he's signaled that um, those two types of rule are somehow separate from political rule and kingly rule. And for the rest of book one, he's going to focus on those two, on oikonomike and despotike. Briefly, he's going to focus on economics. And he's going to focus on economics, that is the, the running of a household, um, the acquisition and use of the things that you need for day-to-day -day life uh, in the household as a sub-political form of power. And it's within the confines of oikonomike that he's going to talk about the use of slaves or despotike. That's what we're going to talk about on Thursday um, is what Aristotle has to say about despotike. But for right now, I think what's important is that Aristotle subordinates um, the mastery of slaves to the role of household manager. He makes slavery a private matter, something that happens within the household. And he makes the household into a pre-political and sub-political uh, domain. And he implicit in the argument here is that it's important to differentiate the world of the household from the world of the city and to recognize that what happens in the city is going to be different in kind from what happens within the household right? and is something higher and better. So Aristotle makes this differentiation um, in order to subordinate household management and mastery of slaves 
underneath politics and to, to make it a pre-political matter that can be dispensed with fairly quickly. That signals that the rest of the book after book one is going to be concerned with the other two forms of rule, with kingly rule and with political rule. Okay. Um, I think this would have been a controversial claim in Aristotle's time, precisely because Aristotle is arguing that being good at managing day-to-day -day life is not a qualification for political life, right? That in fact, politics aims at something higher than life itself. Um, and so we'll have to come back to discussing um, what that is. But I think Aristotle is sort of trying to hive off these economic um, and um, um, despotic relations, family relations and relations between master and slave to hive them off from politics. After the discussion of slavery, most of what Aristotle does for the rest of the chapter is discuss crematistike, that is, the uh, how you acquire the means of life. Um, so this is the that's the part that we might recognize as uh, economic. This is his discussion of of trade, of farming, um, and that sort of thing. Um, and so um, we'll. It's part of the, the world that Aristotle wants to um, get over before talking about politics proper. And then finally, he has a very brief discussion right at the end about ruling over wife and children, um, the various virtues of the ruled, um, and what it means to rule over free persons. And this is going to be the real distinction in some sense. Um, and this will motivate the discussion for next time, the discussion of slavery. The biggest divide um, in Aristotle is the distinction between um, ruling over free persons and ruling over unfree persons. Uh, despotike is the art of ruling over unfree persons. Everything, every other form of rule is the rule is ruling over free people. And the, the qualitative difference there um, is, going to be, uh, is going to be very important for Aristotle's argument. Um, and we'll look at that in more detail next time when we discuss uh, his discussion of slavery. Mm -hmm.